Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon, and today is day 168 of Occupy Wall Street. And, uh, well, I guess it's been uh, well over a week since I've uh, last done a podcast, and I wish I had a good reason, but the truth is that I've just kind of fallen into a lazy mood here lately and have been mainly just reading and working on my next book. Uh, and uh, then there's also been more time spent in the dentist's office than I care to talk about, but uh, that's another story. So to you wonderful souls who have made donations to the salon during the past couple of weeks or who have bought one of my books, I sincerely thank you. And uh, except for the Amazon Kindle books, I'll be in touch with you via email in the next few days. And uh, those of you who have uh, bought a book on Amazon, I, I do appreciate your support, uh, but I don't get to know who you are. Uh, and I really appreciate the fact that you guys aren't as lazy as I seem to be these days. Uh, also, uh, just a quick word to my friend John from the Chicago area. Uh, I received your snail mail, but when I went to back to Facebook to thank you, I discovered that you disappeared from the site. So, well, I hope you're okay, and if you get a chance, please let me know via email so uh, I can quit worrying about what happened to you. Now, uh, as you may remember from my last podcast... We were just about to finish up with the talks that Bruce Damer and I gave at the Terrence McKenna Beyond 2012 workshop that was uh, held on the 28th of January this year. And my apologies go out to my dear friend Bruce because it's his final talk that I didn't get out in a podcast last week. But, uh, well, here we are once again, and uh, so now let's join Bruce Damer for his talk in which... Well, he begins by taking us on a mental voyage around our own solar system, and from there he tells a fascinating story of his meeting with a, well, a somewhat dodgy character who convincingly explained that uh, although it may appear other ways at times, there uh, actually is no cabal secretly controlling human affairs. But uh, hey, why am I telling you all this when we could be listening to Bruce instead? So here he is. I want to share two stories with you. So from a vision that I had, surprisingly, it was prior to me going to the jungle recently, sometimes what I'll do is I'll just sit, you know, with nothing uh, more than, say, bad airline coffee or just an open mind, and I'll say, you know, I'm open. I'm a completely open container. And maybe this is what happens to us after we've we've been there. And I said, what is it? Uh, when I, I'm going to the jungle, what is it that I'm supposed to do? And for about two and a half, this is on a flight. So for about two, it's a good way to spend a flight rather than watching those cheesy movies. But um, And the noise-canceling headphones are the godsend for all <laughs> visionary explorations at 38,000 feet. But I, I was encountered by what, became apparent over time as the planetary plant body. It was this massive green coil thing all around me. And I could zoom up around the Earth and see how it wrapped the Earth. It was the hypersea. It was this thing. It was all algae. It was all redwood forests. And I'm a plants kind of a person. I do a lot of gardening and things like that. And I said to it, okay, you're here. What is it you're trying to do? You know, what what are you telling me? 
we're trying to stand up. We're trying to get up. Well, why are you trying to stand up? We're trying to look out. Okay, okay. Look in the lookout. I'm in the lookout department myself. Uh, where are you? What are you? Why are you doing this? And because it's time to go out. And I get okay. Let's go on a. Let's go together. You know, this is familiar territory. I've spent ten years putting my mind all over the solar system and visualizing missions and even helping design some and studying every you know plant body and comet and asteroid and I've I've kind of have a solar system in my head so we zoomed around and we we went first to the moon and there was this very very desiccated dust and they said this is no good for us and so then we went on to a, a near earth an apollo object they're called and we got in a little bit deeper in the inside and there was some moisture and they said this is good and then we went to the sands of Mars, and we went to different latitudes of Mars, and I could feel feel this plant body putting its tendrils, almost like the octopus tendrils or its tongue, through the soils and saying, "This is good. We could be here. We can eat this. This is this is for us." And while we were on Mars, I said, "Come with me. I'll show you something." And we pulled back, and we went around Mars until this Gusev crater. And I was at the meeting at JPL where they picked the landing sites for the rovers. Everyone voted. Just put their hands up and voted. And so I really remember this vividly. And so we zoomed down, and there was one of the rovers. I could hear it to this day going crunch, crunch, crunch. It was like going at a few centimeters a minute, you know, along. I said, this is from the monkeys. The monkeys have been here. You have to understand. And they said, really impressed. <laughs> we had no idea. <laughs> but only the monkey's mind has been here. We don't see the monkeys themselves. We only see their mind. I said, "That's yeah, that's right. And so we went back to the earth and I said, well, you're trying to stand up. What's the problem? Uh, well, it's too slippery. We keep slipping out. We keep trying to lift the planet, you know, the the plant body, the consciousness, and we keep falling back. So what are you trying to climb on? We're climbing on you. I said, okay, we're, we're slippery buggers. You know, What are you climbing on? On your technology, on everything you're doing, we are climbing. We are trying to get higher and higher to look out. Because once we look out, we can go out. I said, well... Is it a problem that we're cutting you down? We're, you know, there's less algae than there ever was in the oceans. We're cutting the rainforest and everything. No, this is not a problem. This is what it's all about. This is the sacrifice we are willing to make. This is what it's about. This is what you're for, and this is what we are about. And it, I, I was like, okay. I, I came out of this, tears streaming down my face. This was so powerful, and I was attempting to write my usual notes, but it was really difficult to English this one. And so this has now become kind of, this is an odd, this is a overmind kind of inspired vision of now what, I don't know the answer. I said to them, I promise you, I will try to solve this problem of how to get purchase, how to get, how to get um, up this ladder. So that's story number one. Story number two um, is something that I think I hope will help you understand what's going on in the world a little bit. It sort of made me relax a little bit more. And it comes back to Terence saying, there is no one in control. The terrible news is that all conspiracy theories are wrong. 
There are no cabals that run the world. There's no one pulling strings. The worst thing is that the, the truth is that there is no one driving. Now, I'll give you an example of this. Uh, I was in, in my 20s, in my early 20s, I, I was at University of Southern California, and turns out I met a guy playing chess who was a financial guru for, uh, gosh, he was, it was the, uh, Aristotle Onassis. He had been. And so I got, I got in with this bad company, these deal-making financial guy. He was a genius, and we structured deals. And I was in the background. He'd be on a call to Kuwait or a call to this and that. It was gray market financial instruments, all this bizarre stuff like a giant pearl from somewhere or you know, $4 billion in Doré gold bars that are unstamped that got moved out of Iran after the revolution there in this warehouse and we can use them to back this deal. And of course, all these deals mostly fell apart. And he just didn't make money, but he was really good at finding them. So I kind of thought, oh, this is the financial system? <laughs> this is, wow. Um, anyway, so um, I got to meet, he said, come on, we're going to LAX. There's a, there's a guy who's come in, he's at the Embassy Suites. And uh, his name is Kojak, and that's all you need to know. So we, we go see this guy, and they're in these rooms, and he's a bald guy. He's Turkish. He's completely bald, and he looks like Kojak. So he's called Kojak. And um, I said, you know what? There's a guy who's across the embassy suites. You know, this is a bad hotel to do this in because all the roofs across the way look out on this courtyard. And there's, like, people in suits over there with cameras. Oh, yeah, we're used to that. You know, don't... <laughs> Okay, as long as they don't have gun sights or something. But anyway, so the this Kojak had a case of this stuff, these these promissory notes from governments of bizarre governments and and during the lunch break, you know, I'd usually say nothing. I would just so I was just tagging along. And I asked Kojak, I said, Can I ask you a question? Like you're involved in all this shit. He says, oh, my family has five hundred years experience in this shit. <laughs> <laughs> I said, okay, uh, can I ask you a question? Is there a conspiracy running the world? Is there a small group of people who have influence over big economic things, big geopolitical things? And he said, scratched his finger. Let's see, not now, but before the war, some families could do it. In the 19th century, there was this influence. In the 18th century, there was this influence, et cetera, et cetera. But after the war, World War II, um, the money just started to move like this. So the money had been in Europe, and the money then started to move to America. And then it got up and it flowed toward the Far East. Then in the 70s, it flowed into the Middle East. And money is power, and money is, is leverage. And then, and this was the mid-'80s, so that was about the end of the story. He said, the system is so dynamic, it's like a serpent. It, you try to ride it, it throws you off. There's no one in control. Period. It's impossible. Now, in the 2003 time frame, I was part of a Pentagon uh, think tank uh, called the Arlington Institute. And our job in January 2003 was to come up with this massive report about how to move America off petroleum. And it was getting more and more urgent. This is a, a DOD-sponsored study. And it was beautifully done. It's online. You, you can see it. Um, it. It shows where energy is used in the economy. And um, how you could replace petroleum with all these other things. It's realistic. It's, it's tens of millions of dollars are put into this. But there was a, practically a fist fight in this meeting over the Iraq operation, which was coming up between somebody from the War College and somebody else and this and that. And 
I said, I stood up at one point and said, you know, I'm in the background here, but I want to tell you guys that if you blow a half a trillion dollars in this war and you wreck the DOD, which was they were concerned of, there's something else coming, and it's called mortgage-ageddon. And it's going to happen in 2008. They asked me what, what date. I said, 2008 is an election year. These things always happen in an election year. All these toxic mortgages, which we're just starting, are going to tumble. The banking system will go down. Everything will go down like a house of cards. Why did I know this? Because the software I helped build in the 80s was used by currency desks. I said, you guys don't understand. Not only is there no one running the system, it's code that is going to automatically do things. So derivative instruments, currencies, code will execute whether or not anybody's watching or not. Not only is there no one running the system, there's no code running the system. Because it's the financial system is a giant hairball of go-to statements and lacks, lack of, of control um, and out-of-control pools of assets that flow. And the traders are just watching like the rapid eye movement trying to figure out what is going on as this stuff happens as this machine wakes up and does its thing. And most of the time it wakes up and does its thing such that a few people can make some money over here. But the code is like it's worse than, you know, a Microsoft could ever deliver in Windows ME. You know, this is it's – a, it's a hodgepodge. So truthfully, in order for us to remake the world – it no, and this, this comes back down to is no one is to blame. Not only is no one in control, in truth, you can't do the 60s thing. You can't stand outside the Pentagon and protest those people because, well, there's a whole bunch of other people that are pushing the system to get the funding to this. You're protesting the wrong place. Or then you, you go over and protest in K Street, and that's the wrong place. And you go protest at a, at a wealthy individual's house. That's actually the wrong place, too. It's a whole system. That is, that is working this way. You actually have to go in with nerds. Once you've changed the legal code, you have to change the software code. And that will take some of the people in this room who can think in terms of whole systems. It's almost the psychedelic thinking, too, because you have to think, you have to see a machine so large. I mean, think, think McKenna's elf universes. Think the complexity of that to visualize the entire system and then to start changing it, start pulling the plugs on this, rewriting the code. You have to optimize the operating system for the planet in real terms, financial, etc. You have to do operating system optimization. So that's just a, a little scoop on uh, taking Terrence. Uh, Terrence says nobody is in control. No code is in control, but nerds are on the way. <laughs> The geeks are going to rule. <laughs> <And wh> <coughs> Nobody for president. Nobody for president. I vote, uh, I got a new iPhone 4S. I vote Siri for president. She makes way more sense. <laughs> She's a voice that talks to you back, uh, answers all questions. <laughs> but, uh, did, Lorenzo, did we want to? I think, yeah, let's honor McKenna's... Uh, Kenna's format and his chief buzz and do Q&A because that's, that's where the new things are made. Um, we could do a lot more little raps and everything, but join us at Esalen or come to Burning Man or we're going to continue this, another maybe an event here in L.A. again, and we'll just keep going. So, um, but with the limited time we have, let's hear from, from you. I know there, somebody had a question about 2012 because we didn't really, we kind of blew that off. So does... Do you have a specific question about 2012? Or? Uh, 
Yeah, uh, well, more of a comment. I think Karen's kind of got a bad rap about Because he never said what he had thought. He was called the end of time. And to me, that's what's going on here. Everything we've been talking about is, you know, the Occupy movement, everything, it, this is a time of change. It's not a time of an end. It's a time of, of evolution of, of, of cycling into the, the next thing. I had uh, something came to me, one of those ones that does sometimes. It said, uh, interface with the machines, cooperate. And in fact, that's what we're doing. That's the, what's, the, the 2012 thing is already happening. That's what, mm -hmm. what you've been feeling all along. I've been feeling states of ecstasy for the last couple of years that are just, I can't believe that I, I look around and I see people frowning and stuff. It's so wonderful. There's so much great energy here. You know, how can you not uh, feel it? You know, the, what's happening is going to transcend politics and money. Human life is going to be the thing that, that matters, not money. And the, the currency, the future currency is information is money. And that's... I, I agree with you uh, about Terrence maybe getting a bad rap for 2012 because he's really not here to defend himself. He left uh, in the year 2000, and uh, I even noticed in some of his uh, his his you know later talks he was kind of backing away from the time wave thing a lot. Uh, pardon me. Don't take it so seriously. I hope people don't <coughs> take it literally. Is what he told me. Uh. Yeah. In fact, uh, Bruce might want to say something about the time wave and uh, the little note that you found of Terrence's. You notice in the post-it note, he writes December 21st, yes, yes. And when they finally had adjusted the curves right, you know, and I think he, yeah, I think he seriously backed away from it. And Dennis McKenna told me, he said, on December 21st of this year, I'm going to find a rock to hide under. <laughs> but but to back to your point, I think what you're pointing out is something that I think we all need to really listen to because there is incredibly wonderful things going on and that the media gives when I fly from uh, other countries into the United States it's like you're flying through a dome a pall of of anxiety that's created by this shouting screaming media and if I happen to accidentally see TV uh, here somewhere in a hotel room or in the airport I'm like oh my god but then I get home to the farm where we have no TV. Like things start getting better again. I can lift that pall up and do my work. And so this artificially, there's a one thing. I'll tell you one rap on on this. Where this comes, if you've seen the Madman, Mad Men TV show, which I've never seen, but I heard hear it's about ad men in the 50s. And so my wife's family is were all Mad Men. And her, her father made some of the first television commercials. He was an art director in the 40s, 50s. He was on Yank magazine in the war. And her uh, father, her uh, mother, his, her, her mother's husband was a really big guy in, in advertising in New York. So once we were invited to this funeral at the Cooper Union, this guy named Lou, somebody or other, who had started advertising at CBS in 1946. And so here you have these, this panel on stage of these ashen-faced older men that look, they look like they're out of um, a ghoul movie. These guys are not happy. They have no color in them. No color. And they're the surviving madmen from that 1940s that created the business, the world we live in. They created that television, electronic business. 
Well, they're doing their ordinary like tributes to this guy Lou and this is what he would do. You come in and he'd scare the shit out of you first, and then he'd make you work for forty eight hours. And all they drink their way, and they would you know would sleep their way through all of their offices, and they, you know this terrible. It was all true, you know, three martinis and then go home and stuff like that. And the clients were stupid, and this was it was all true. So that Hollywood's captured that, but. It, one point, this, uh, an elegant woman stood up in the audience, and she couldn't hold it in anymore. And she pointed at each of these guys and said, you're a bastard, you're an effing bastard, you're the worst thing, you know, you should go to hell, and you and you and you. <laughs> and she was the daughter of Lou. <laughs> and <clears throat> she basically went on her own rant about how you made our family life hell for wh- how you behaved. And I went out of that like, this is these are the people that were nominated somehow or to create the messages that we get. This is the this is their their archetypal mythological father gray elders. This is the elders of this business, and look how horrendous, how awful these people are. And so we have to we have to in a sense heave them off. Shyat uh, Day, you know, Jay Shyat rather, uh, the one of the creators of modern advertising. Um, he wrote about 10 years ago, he wrote this, this thing in Fortune magazine. It was like, advertising is the worst curse on human civilization ever. And the advertising that me and uh, you know, Day created was, was a particularly bad strain. And we steal your dreams, we steal your imagination, we steal your health. We ste- we, this is bad. Don't, don't, uh, don't misunderstand me. This is a very, very bad medium. It's very unhealthful for society. So, I don't know how I got started on this, but it's it's about seeing the brighter side, I and mean, you have to look through that that pall, that dome, of of fabricated negativity and anxiety and desire. You know, our community needs to do a better job at preserving its history. You know, we talk about advertising has invented new histories for us that never happened, right? So our community is pilloried and, you know, blah, blah, blah. We already, already know that. But these archives, like Terrence's archives, were lost, so we reconstructed them. A couple of years ago, you know, in concert with Lorenzo, I started a, something called Psychedelia Collection, which is at the Internet Archive, archive.org. And we are dumping everything in there, and that's all protected. That's backed up on two continents. It's Brewster Kale who will protect you know, it's the Internet Archive. It's the largest archive in the world. They archive the whole web every month since 1996. But these are special collections. Everything that's in there is Creative Commons licensed. So people are now uploading like crazy, you know, the first big block groups. And from the Leary collection, it turns out, and Michael Horowitz, who's the archivist, could not figure this out. So we found a home for the Leary collection. This is 450, 500 boxes of stuff. You can't imagine what was in this collection. Lorenzo came up, and, and the collection speaks to you. So Lorenzo's, I know that when you have an important visitor like Lorenzo, the collection is going to think of these bankers' boxes. They'll open up their mouths and say, look inside of me. And one of them did, and he looked in, and he pulled out this thin folder and it said, if, if on it, I, if, I, if. Oh, I've been looking for this for a year. How did you find it? And it's the inf- you know Institute for Internal Freedom and wh- whatever it was. And it said if if 1960. It's like 
Wow. And what did you see when you opened it up? Uh, there were so many things in there that day that uh, we even found his baby book where his mother recorded the day and hour of the first time he splashed in the bathtub. Yeah. That's how complete that complete. archive is. But actually, the, the key document you found was the first psilocybin trip of Alpert and Leary. And it's on laboratory notebook paper, and there's a little, it says, Al, you know, Leary, uh, Alpert, four, 350 micrograms, and scribble, 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 and then Leary. It's things like that. And so we finally, after years and years and years, through another rare books dealer, Dennis Berry found a home, the New York Public Library. And they were able to, to pay enough money that Tim's will was satisfied that some of his heirs get some money. Because let's face it, he wasn't the best father in the world. I mean, Tim Leary had a, his life. I mean, Terrence's life you can kind of get into your skull. Tim Leary's, if you try to put your life, his life into your skull, you just it'd blow up in a million pieces. It, this life is never to be led again. I mean, <laughs> um, we'll, 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 get, we'll, get, we'll get to you. So we spent years and years digitizing what we could and everything before it went to the New York Public Library. A lot of the talks you'll hear in the salon were from that wonderful collection, and they're beautiful talks. I mean, Tim Leary hopefully is being reborn for a new generation. But the, public, the library didn't want his books. So... The trustee called me up from the warehouse and said their truck has pulled out heading to Queens, you know, from California. And they left the books and they left all the news clippings and they left a bunch of other things and the vinyl record collection. It's like they didn't want anything that was already previously copyrighted. They wanted only original papers. And they, she said, and I'm throwing this stuff away because I just don't know what to do. I mean, carrying around for 15 years and... I said, is, are the dumpsters in the building? Because you've thrown out half the news clippings. Now, these are clippings from the Harvard Crimson all the way up, 1960, 70, 80, et cetera, 90. Big books of them and loose ones and all stamped from a professional clipping service. You know, the, this is you know, hundreds of thousands of hours of work and preservation. And it's the entire story of, the, the, of that period. And uh, I went and I said, oh, the, don't put the dumpsters outside. I'm coming to save them all. So I took them all, and I took as many of the books as I could. I had a, one or two seconds to say yes, no to each book. If it had marginalia in it, I grabbed it. If it had a signed author copy, or it was about things I was interested in, but the rest just went. In his vinyl record collection, I took that. The chandelier from his house in Beverly Hills is going to hang over the dome at Burning Man at our camp. <laughs> It's this weird, painted, really wild chandelier. But I just, just three days ago, the Internet Archive said we've managed to scan a complete box of the 16 boxes, one box, because they had never handled clippings before, and it's all live in Psychedelia Collection. And so now you can go and see. They picked a random box. They were like, we're going to have to make a swivel plate. You know, these, are, these are archive nerds, and they're like, how do we do clippings? You know, and they're immediately designing something in their heads. You know how to do both sides and turn it, and then have the camera shoot. And they did it, and I've got to convince them to do the rest. But uh, those that will now be available to you, uh, and you could go in yourself and become an archivist and start building metadata and research and and, and build. It's going to what I call it the Library of Alexandria for this medium. And otherwise, our information is just scattered. You know what? If the psychedelic salon needs a permanent home. So every episode's backed up there. All of your podcasts, all of your work, your art, your writing can get a permanent home there. And there's a team building a shell that will go on top of this called psychedeliarchive.org. And I'm promoting projects again here, but 
We had a question in the back. You talked about there's no real-world conspiracy. Could you <coughs> relate to what happened in, on 9-11 um, in terms of there's no real conspiracy? Well, I usually st- I, I stay away from this topic. I'll, I'll make a comment, though, <coughs> and, and I don't want to get into the the – what happened at 9-11, because uh, you know, we all have our own opinions of that. I think that one of the ways to approach it, though, is to say it really doesn't matter who was behind it. What matters is what happened after it. You know, we have become a fascist clampdown nation. You know, we're under video surveillance everywhere. You can't fly without getting half naked. And, and it's going to get worse. That, that uh, the 9-11 was an excuse. No matter who caused it, the results are the same. And the results are very not very pleasant, I think. So, uh, but I think we'd get into a real can of worms if we give our all our own opinions on that. But go ahead. I just I, just to further that is, is that we have the NDAA that nobody is speaking about. None of our and it's important for us to talk about it what because is the the NDAA. It's the National Defense Authorization, Authorization Act. Act, which means that any one of us, any American citizen, can be detained and without. Due process. Indefinite. By the military. By the military. So that what's important about this is that it's not that we get become paralyzed and go, oh, shit, you know, look what's going to happen. Is that we're aware of this and that we start a dialogue because the thing that's so powerful about the Internet is that we're all talking to each other. If we don't talk to each other about this, then power is over us. The only way we can become thrivers as opposed to victims is if we discuss it with each other. And, and then we find ways to make it healthier for us. Now one, one big way to make it healthier on that, I talked to friends in the military and they said, you know what? We don't know who put that in there. This has happened to us before. We don't want to do this. We're not set up to do this. This is like a nightmare for us that this is in this stupid act. And but what they so they're kind of appalled that this is there. We don't have the infrastructure, the setups, the, the blah, blah. so what you do actually in order to counter stuff like this, you get and you go talk to those people that are appalled in the military that this was put in. Because what generally in in the system, this is my friend explained. He said some stupid political you know individual have put this in the act. No one consulted us about enforcement. Nothing. And it will get through, and then it will go grinding through for years in courts until it's thrown out. And we will just not act on it because now it's in the courts, and, but it's a waste of everyone's time. So if you, if you go to them and you make a partnership, don't consider that they're the enemy. Go and find as many partners you can from all sides of the issue, and you will overturn these. And it, one theory that I have is that it's no more than, if you counted it up, that the troublemakers in the media perhaps in religion, in political funding, uh, in the system. The people that really are doing the damage, you can identify them. That's what, what Occupy showed. You know, like so-and-so from Bank of America just got a huge bonus, and they would list the names. No one had ever done this before. But I, I, I warrant you, or I, I challenge us, that if you were doing research, you could find that there was probably no more than 500 people causing most of the damage in the system. You'd find the individual who got that act put in there and identify them because it's still open. Now, one of the things that Warren Buffett could do, and this is 
a thing that or wrote in Radical Remake because Warren Buffett's very alarmed about all this. So I said, a challenge to Warren Buffett, take a billion dollars from the fund, you know, from the his enormous fund that he uses for public good, fund just straight investigation and litigation. And litigation is powerful. It's still a very powerful tool. This is why you can have, you know, litigation can really shut stuff down. And you fund very tough-minded, top people for 15, 20 years that go after. They see that kind of shit, and they go and they say, listen, we're just starting an investigation. And when we find out who did this, if they broke laws, we're going to litigate from just this foundation. And, and it will cause a chilling effect upon a lot of the people who are just like, hey, I can do anything I want. I'll write anything in. A chilling effect if there's a watchdog, effectively an as independent watchdog on bad behavior. I, I'm normally the cheery guy, but I'll add to the doom and gloom a little bit and take a little different tack on that because NDAA is definitely a, a threat. However, uh, I think the even more uh, imminent one, uh, you know, I used to say, yeah, well, they can't have martial law because the National Guard and the military is just worn thin, you know, with all the wars we've got going. So they just don't have the people to do it. And then the Occupy movement comes along. And you look at the police forces, and these are stormtroopers. These, these aren't. There's no riots that are being called out for, but these these riot police stormtroopers. Uh, what's been happening is a lot of the kids with the the cameras and stuff up in the front lines are calling them out by name and all. Of course, then they're hacking their accounts and publicizing that. The officers are covering up their name tags, so now there's lawsuits about that, and they're bringing them out. But uh, I talked to a friend of mine in law enforcement, and he said, well, because I think it was uh, Albany, New York, the, uh, a lot of the officers just laid down their, their, their badges and said, we're not going to do this. And what this friend of mine says, yeah, what they're doing is they're weeding out anybody that has any sympathy for the Occupy movement, and all you're going to have left is some pretty hardcore stormtrooper guys. So I think that, that even though I agree with what Bruce says about the military, but I think the police has been militarized so much that we, we have an ongoing issue there. And, and that's where the Occupy kids are so good is calling these people out. They're standing on the front lines, and they'll see a name tag and say, Officer Ramirez, uh, what, do you have a family? What do your children think about this? Your grandchildren are going to be embarrassed about what you're doing. And they're talking to them just on, you know, some of the kids are shouting and all, but some of them are trying to have a conversation. And so they, just, they look up Ramirez's Facebook page and say your kid just posted that he doesn't like what my dad is doing you know <laughs> i'm sure that's probably happened so uh, i don't want to spin it off too much go ahead uh, do you have any uh, comments on the future of facebook next week they're coming out with ipo for- oh boy yeah. yeah it could change everything i guess facebook's just another part of the infrastructure but i don't know you know these corporations you know the do no evil thing I mean, all corporations go through these life phases. So I think what you're going to see, you know, as you sort of saw with Microsoft One Point and Apple and all the, they went through these sort of growing uh, youthful phases where they're fairly open. And then they enter middle age, and that's kind of where they're adrift. And then when they enter, like, the challenging years, they can kind of get squirrely. So Facebook for a while will be on this nice trajectory. But truthfully, in, if people really thought Facebook was doing evil things, then they would rush to other networks. But Facebook will become part of the cyber infrastructure. Don't get me wrong, but I think I think, you know, I think don't don't believe everything you hear. I, I think these companies really listen to people. They 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 listen, especially as public companies. Boards do listen. I'm on a couple of boards, and if if there's a huge protest against something, 
the companies that take it seriously, maybe more and, than And government. Facebook now is becoming a model, too, because there's a lot of mini Facebooks. There's one for Occupy, O-C-U-P-I-I dot org, I think. And there's only about a 1,000 of us on it right now, and everybody kind of knows each other, but there's hundreds of videos already posted. And I think you're going to see a lot of these little uh, uh, you know, community Facebook things popping up, too. Good. We need more esoteria. Well, because Terrence was so pressing on so many things, and I was talking about how, as we explore more and more about the quantum universe, how do you see life in the quantum universe? Your life in particular. (laughs) How do you see people interacting? Well, I mean, this the layer, and I'm not a quantum physicist, but I do live next to one, Nick Herbert. And occasionally I come up with some ideas and he comes and like slaps my wrists or other parts of me <laughs> and says, you're not, you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, his, um, he works on non-locality, Bell, Bell's theorem and stuff like that. I think that, and I, I think it's been said before by other people far better, I think we shouldn't, we shouldn't map the abstract world of physics, especially subatomic physics, into anything meaningful that makes sense to a primate brain. I think it's just so—it's a weird, weird reality. You know, looking at how the cell works is as, is strange enough. I mean, I for for my money, you know, the quantum world is just so far from our everyday reality that you just can't get your head around it. But when you get your head around, you try to get your head around the origin of life. Which probably has roots in, you know, quantum dynamics as well. Why is it? And this is a chance for me to go on this a little bit. Why is it that molecules that have been happily living ever after and and getting more complex and getting heavier elements, you know, and just happily living with not a care in the world, why would they go through all the trouble of self-assembling into a compartment, which then goes through all this trouble and all this ballet dance to make a copy and make a second compartment. Why? All this bother, all this complexity. And that's, you know, there's a couple of, of places that you, as, as the kind of thinkers that you are, can put your mind. One of them is that, and I've been pondering that for 10 or 15 years. Another one is this ordinary embryogenesis. Why is it that a single cell, you know, a fertilized cell that's going to divide a few times and make a ball why is this ball suddenly becomes differentiated so that that's now going to be the head, the gut, the outside skin? Nobody knows the answer to this. There's a friend of mine, Dick Gordon in Canada, who's an advisor on the Evil Grid project. They've found, now this is a very psychedelic thing, he's found these waves uh, through these high-powered microscopes that watch embryos, axolotl embryos, which are some bizarre creature from a lake somewhere. I'm not sure, but they're easy to study. Salamander. Um, and there are these waves that, that in the very, very early little ball stage of the embryo, they pass over the embryo and they ripple. And they ripple. And they and he believes that this is the actual, this is genesis. This is embryogenesis. This is information that's rippling through this ball and saying, now you will be head, you will be tail. Now, where did this ripple get generated? You know, they can't find her. There's no, like, little stereo system in one of the cells attached to an iPod somewhere, a celestial iPod, to, to send the right signal. It's got to be rich information, but it's 
And it's, it happens every second of every day. You know, all, uh, embryogenesis is an origin of the universe event that's happening over and over and over again. And so Dick Gordon's actually, you know, he wrote two massive books about this thing, which are starting to get some visibility. But, but think of that. I mean, it's a vibration. You know, in the beginning there was the word. Something like that. And then it vibrated. And then it vibrated. Um, very far back. There's also another component about that he talked quite frequently with the alchemy. Can you comment about it? That's a little more my, my interest. And lately, it's been also a lot of uh, gathering of pretty much alchemists. There was even a conference last year here in LA that seems to be stuck in the gathering of the minds and a similar kind of consciousness is starting to become as, as more prepared, type of thing. Can you comment a little bit about what was the state of the alchemy process? But why suddenly this research is also from this ancient archivist too that's starting to slowly and opening up in a different way? Yeah, I think I, I lived in Prague for three years in the early 90s and uh, literally walked every other day through Prague Castle. And, and this was back in the day, there were no tourists initially. Like 1990, there was just no tourists. So you couldn't, you could get beer, but you, there was no restaurant, functioning restaurant in, that wasn't a state-controlled restaurant in the beginning. It, it changed fairly quickly. But I could walk to the Alchemist Lane. I didn't know Terrence was into this stuff. Can you imagine that if, if we had started? I did not know he was a bohemophile. But you could go in these little houses that didn't have anyone in them. They were so narrow, they were in the parapets of the castle. In order to get upstairs, you unfolded the stair system to then go up. And the alchemist lived in this lane. Uh, and I was very, very inspired by all this and Rudolf II. And I started an alchemy lab at Charles University, the math physics department, underneath Prague Castle. So there was this Jesuit monastery. And then we, we literally... We took, I mean, this is a long answer to the question, but we took steel bars to hammer through a 11-foot thick wall to put a fiber optic cable to get this lab on an early version of the Internet. And we did alchemical software. So we were doing uh, an origin of, we were doing an artificial life project with the students there and weird 3D graphics and stuff like that. We call it the Comanius Lab. So I got very... In, the alchemical environment of Prague, uh, maybe most recently, was Kafka, because Kafka, you know, he he created, you know, in his books is the idea of metamorphosis and transformation and the robot, you know, and yet he's he, his mind was looking into the future. Robotai is a Czech word, the robot that was coming. So I th I think that alchemy, and and this is from my ignorance of what the recent things have happened. Alchemy is a re-expanding of the human imagination around, uh, away from reductionism, away from this tunneling in of scientific technological reductionism that every time drills you down and says you, 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 you can only stay in these little narrow boundaries. And great scientists are always, they're all alchemists, they're all thinking very strange imaginal thoughts. They're way out there because they're going out into the imaginal world to to get insight, and they realize that if they stay in the reductionist path, they'll be they'll be technocrats till they die. Freeman Dyson is one of these guys, and uh, he was a helper in the Evil Grid project. And uh, I go to see him now and then, and he's all his imagination is everywhere. 
and you know he might be considered a nutter by some people in his in his the English term nutter, but I think that maybe that is alchemy, it's restretching, it's the stretching of our minds again, out into the mystical and out. You know, the scientist becomes the mystic in order to become to make a huge leap. So I, I probably got the answer wrong, but. Um, I think your hand was up first there. One of the things that troubles me, and I don't have an answer for it, but I know your take on it is, when on the one hand you have this vision of the, the positive good that the Internet is doing, connecting us all and so forth, but it's powered by these fossil fuels that are, you know, poisoning the, the atmosphere, uh, tipping the balance in the, in the atmosphere. Um, I think it came back to that conversation with the plant body. You know, it's interesting because the oxygen holocaust that happened two billion years ago when you had photosynthetic algae, pond scum basically, that pumped free oxygen into the atmosphere, O2, and poisoned it for everybody else. I mean, that was in the the, the era of single-celled things. But it turns out that the the huge leap that happened in that period was the, the cells that were able to metabolize this free oxygen, which is uh, otherwise acts like a cookie cutter and takes apart your organic molecules. So then we got the, the citrus acid or Krebs cycle that made energy uh, in cells because of this huge stress of an atmospheric change-out. And if humans are doing an atmospheric change-out, it's because of this, perhaps the whole planet. I mean, we think we think that you know, we only limit ourselves to us, but the whole planet is doing this outgassing, uh, and the transformation of the atmosphere is, a, is an expression of this. And maybe it's like the plant body said, it's not a problem, it's what it was all for. No, that's not a very, you know, I think I think uh, we just don't know where we're going. Uh, I think definitely responsible uh, pollution controls, we've pulled back from some brinks, you know, the CFC elimination and stuff like that. And But I think we're going to make a big mess of the place before we see the direction. Population growth is, the, I mean, I go to China a lot, and my God, I mean, it's, everyone's going up to our living standard and then maybe higher, and they're building highways. It's like the Eisenhower era, they're building highways horizon to horizon and high-speed rail, and they're redoing it, but, you know, five times faster. Than, than we did it here from the 50s. So where does that go? So there's the good news. We have no plan and nobody's in charge. <laughs> Let's party. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'd like to comment on that. Um, I've uh, been working with <clears throat> plants for over 20 years in a very, very intimate fashion. Um, and I've had similar conversations to the one you had with uh, the plant body on the plane. And there is really, all I want to say is that um, these are highly, highly evolved uh, creatures, and their ability to adapt to what we're doing to them uh, should not be underestimated. I think we, we still, you know, uh, it's just a matter of learning how to, how to work our systems. And, and we don't need, I mean, I think it's, it's pretty clear that we can, we can change over from fossil fuel. We have other alternatives available, and it's just a matter of, of um, pushing aside that older technology and getting into the new stuff, and then, and then we can you know, deal with other, other things. But the, the, you shouldn't um, fret about that, because um, there's a lot of power there, a great, great deal. Um, and 
we're really, we're really, I've said this before, I hope I'm not offending anybody, but the Bible's really backwards. Um, man is not the, the, the ruler of all the other things. We are in, we are dependent on all other things. We're actually at the bottom. We're not at the top. We're at the bottom. <laughs> and um, so, and really plants are, in my opinion, at the top. And so, um, I don't, I don't think we can wreck it, really. Even, even with, even with nasty fossil fuels, I don't think we can. Here's a funny, funny long-term thinking story. Um, you probably, my, we're not far from Jet Propulsion Lab here. And it turns out, that all the boys at Jet Propulsion Lab and the girls too thought that oh we're sterilizing the spacecraft really nicely and in our sterilization facility and then we're sending it to Mars you know and we sent Viking and we sent all these things and it turns out that the there were adapted like a dozen strains of adapted bacteria that had adapted to ultra dry even hard radiation and we're living on these spacecraft so Viking on its inside surfaces from 1976 has got living things. They're not metabolizing much, but they're there and they're dormant and they're doing their thing. So there's this whole idea of exportable biota now, that these things will survive interstellar transits, they will survive big solar events, and they will end up in... So we've already exported life to other planets, notably uh, notably Mars is sort of the big place. But my the, the joke version of this is that when each of these spacecraft lands, like the Mars Exploration rovers, the bacteria that are on board report into the bacteria in the Martian crust that was were always there, and they say, okay, what's the story now? Well, they've invented this Internet thing, and they're doing all this this stuff, but we don't think it's a go. We don't think it's a go. And so what... The, we got to try again. This next time, it's arachnids. So the the Martian bacteria say, "Fine, okay, we'll order the strike," and they talk to the bacteria in the great big meteorite that does the dance. The bacteria turn somehow manage to change its magnetic field by going running to one end, and it pirouettes around, and it ends up on a collision course with Earth. And then, of course, in the the bullseye that it's going to hit is like North America, of course, and. So one, you know, one spring day, we noticed that none of the plants are growing in this thousand-mile-wide area, and winter has not left, and everything that's living is uh, is heading out of this bullseye zone, because this meteorite's going to come in and and knock out just just big enough, just perfectly tuned to knock out the human species, so they can try all over again, uh, because they tried with they tried with Anomalocaris you know, in the Cambrian seas, and it was just too clueless. And then they tried again with dinosaurs, and they were too self-centered or something like that. And they're trying with people, and they almost got there. And they were almost out of the, you know, the the time is the app is running down for Earth, and we got to try again. Why? Because we want we want to make a container to take us everywhere else, and uh, it's got to be intelligent, but it has to... You know, really like uh, uh, you know awful foods, so we can live in the guts, and it has to be able to travel and be less self-centered and something like that. So, you know, along what you were saying, though, that I'm sure you've read it. There's a great book called uh, the Biology of Belief, and uh, it's basically about the plants are using us humans to move their genes around the planet. So, uh, it's a pretty interesting book. Uh, botany, botany of desire. What did I say? Biology of belief. Botany of desire. Thank you. Michael uh, Poland. 
Question Ollie. way back here. Well, let me start first. I only have one little little thing about that. Is is you know Ray Kurzweil is talking about the the singularity, and uh, I was uh, thanks to to Matt Palmer. He uh, invited me along to a dinner with uh, Werner Vinge, the the science fiction writer Bruce was talking about, and. And because uh, Werner is the one that con came up with the concept of the singularity, the technological singularity. And uh, so I'm talking to him about uh, Ray Kurzweil and how he was talking about how quick this could happen and all. And he looked at me and he says, oh, Kurzweil is a gradualist. Because <laughs> Benji has a little snappier idea about it. Go ahead. Well, you know, it's kind of it's a sad thing to see someone who's in engineering, who knows about engineering, just kind of go crazy. And you know, about eight nine years ago, I had I met Ray at a conference in in Camden, Maine. We had lunch together, and I agreed to help him generate the statistics for a book called "The Singularity Is Near," which came out. And I, my job was to go into the DigiBarn Museum and figure out uh, processor speed growth. And I said, you know what, processor speed don't represent it. We're going to do GPUs, graphic processors, like three D. So I did that, generated all this data for him, um, and sent him the data. And then I sent him an essay saying, and Ray, this is irrelevant information. What you're trying to argue is so absurd and so in the realm of fantasy. And I'll give you bulletproof examples of how technology doesn't re-engineer itself. In fact, the opposite is true. And around this, this time, Jaron Lanier wrote this wonderful thing called Half a Manifesto, and it was a, a critique of all these people. And But basically, I said, we have the Xerox Star Workstation, 1981, in the collection. You can boot it up. It does about the same thing as a modern computer, but it runs you know, in 256K of code and a processor one-thousandth of the power. But you can do word processing, email, you know, you name it, on this machine. It was the machine everyone copied. The machine Steve Jobs copied and everybody copied. But so what do we have today? Giant machines with giant capacity with bloated code and APIs. and <clears throat> The code is far less maintainable. It's far harder to make innovation within those environments than it was. And code ain't writing itself. You know, and so these... It really is fantasy. For example, <clears throat> every year that the Singularity University operates in the summer, I, the last three years I've been doing talks there, and it's the anti—it's the Singularity, um, uh, also the anti-Singularity talk. It says we're going to look at what a single neuron does. So I bring up these molecular diagrams and signal diagrams and and process diagrams of trying to understand what a neuron does with thousands of little incoming connections, and then you have the head, and then you have incredible, it's incredible. And I said, did you know that there is no supercomputing grid on Earth that can model this thing? That you could distribute all the, at the molecular level, which is the real true level, not one, not a single neuron could be distributed across a thousand computers to faithfully model its action. So how exactly are we supposed to upload, or as Terrence said, download consciousness? You know, we don't even have... A single neuron cannot be modeled. And so the argument against all that is, well, you know, uh, you just do a simpler job. And I said, and then it's a slippery slope. What do you leave out? 
in the behavior of a biological system. It's a miracle on its own. I mean, everything matters. It turns out that there is no junk. Everything matters. And we don't even understand the real granular granularity of its operations. Just it's it's and this all comes from it's sort of a hubris of the engineer. Right? The engineer that thinks I'm an all powerful God and I've written Microsoft Windows, therefore I can do you know, anything else. And it's it's tremendous hubris that comes from Engineers not understanding how Mother Nature actually works. And some of the talks I do, I bring up these, these models of the cell to engineers, and they go, oh, we could never have coded that. We can't get our heads around that. That machine of the cell, one cell, a little bacterium, is so large that it blows their minds. When they, and there's beautiful graphic animations now of, of, of the workings of the cell, a lot of them done at Harvard. And you watch these, and I show these to engineers, and they go, oh, my goodness, you know, proteins folding and unfolding. And and, and they you, looking at this stuff sends you on a trip. So, and I think that when you see this, this simple view of technology and this sort of cyborgic Hollywood, you know, treat it with a huge grain of salt because of these guys... These are guys that are dealing with tinker toys. They're not dealing with real technology yet. We do not have real technology compared to what nature does. We're not even close. So are they saying that the computers will never be like a human mind? The way... What I did as part of the research on the EvoGrid is I said, okay, i got to figure out where this original computer design came from. I'm going to the archives of the Institute for Advanced Study, and because of Pete Hutt and Freeman Dyson... I was able to go in there and get all the boxes out, and they brought all this material out for Op- Robert Oppenheimer's files. And it was his files to do with, when he was director, of the Electronic Computer Project, and then John von Neumann's files, and then the schematics for the machine they built, which is really the, the prototype for all modern computers. And so I went through card decks. It was the first time cards were ever fed into a computer through an IBM thing. And and basically, in in the notes, it says... This is just a provisional design to get this thing to work with 2,400 valve, 2,400 vacuum tubes, CRTs for storage of the thing, and just to keep this operating. So we made an instruction set that would go through this little narrow thing, and they would all execute and address memory, and and they gave it away. They open-sourced it. They gave it – the Army wanted them to do this too, and von Neumann didn't want to write patents and crap like that. So they open-sourced the design, and everybody copied the von Neumann machine. And so the von Neumann machine started out, but before his death in 1955, he wrote cellular automata books and visions of ways computers could be because he thought, well, the thing we built at Princeton, that was just sort of a simplistic and it'll do a few jobs. But what von Neumann didn't see is that that machine got faster and faster and faster. But it's, and so it does everything, we think, very powerfully, but its design is incredibly weak. Uh, it's 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 a very very weak design. It is utterly incompatible with simulating nature, which is what we found out in the Evil Grid project. So, it's it, it's the wrong tool for doing the things that people presume that it can do. In my opinion, you're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. So there you have it. Uh, at least in Bruce's opinion, and in mine as well, I should add. For the foreseeable future, there isn't any chance that we'll be uploading our consciousness into machines. And 
If you've been using a PC or a Mac for a while, my guess is that the inside of one of those boxes is the last place that you'd want to be spending eternity. Of course, uh, <laughs> having your consciousness locked in a Windows-based computer would surely give a whole new meaning to fear of the notorious blue screen of death, wouldn't it? <laughs> Now, if you've been following the thread on the Notes from the Psychedelic Salon webpage or on Facebook, you know that the videos of the first three of these workshop talks are already available on YouTube. And within a few days, our wonderful volunteer, Tom Riddell, will finish the editing on the segment that we just heard, and we'll have that one online as well. And again, I want to thank both Tom and our other cameraman, Daniel Morales, who did an excellent job of recording the first of our 2012 workshops. And, uh, as you know, the second of these workshops will be held over the weekend of June 15th through the 17th this year at Esalen Institute in California. And I understand that the workshop is uh, now about half filled, and so if you plan on being there, you probably shouldn't wait too much longer in making your reservations. Uh, it's going to be a really nice, uh, intimate little group of about uh, 25 or so of us. And I'm sure that by the time the weekend is over, we'll have uh, collectively solved all of the world's problems and uh, probably have had a good time in doing it. So I'll post a link to that event along with the program notes for today's podcast in case you want to check it out. Now, as for the third of these events, uh, I'm sorry to have to report that the one planned for Burning Man may not happen, uh, at least not as originally planned. As you've no doubt already heard, the Burning Man organization, which uh, only had a mere 20 years to plan for selling out one day, well, nonetheless, they completely botched it. Uh, originally, Bruce and I had uh, joined forces with the good folks at Angel Oasis, the theme camp, and who were in the process of combining with another camp to organize a village of about 250 people for this year's burn. Unfortunately, uh, out of several dozen key people, uh, particularly the ones who were really necessary to pull this off, well, only two or three of them got tickets in the lottery. And uh, yes, I know that there are a whole raft of ticket redistribution schemes currently underway, but what happened is that most of our key people, uh, myself included, uh, well, we simply lost our enthusiasm for the event when nobody got tickets. You know, it takes an incredible amount of time and money to pull off a good theme camp, and without your heart really being in it because many of your friends have already decided to move on and go to other festivals this year, well, without all that necessary energy, it just seems smart to cancel the camp. Now, for our fellow saloners who did get tickets and are still planning on attending, I am happy to announce that uh, Bruce did get a ticket for himself and one for his wife, and he's now talking with a couple of different theme camps about hosting the Palenque Norte lectures this year, and uh, of course, uh, that's where the Burning Man version of this workshop was to be held. So, stay tuned for an announcement about where you'll find Bruce and some of the other saloners at this year's burn, but I do want to let you know that I won't be going myself. In fact, uh, I guess it's now pretty safe to say that I've probably been to my last burn. But let me tell you, uh, I still have some great memories of the ones that I did attend, and if you're planning on attending this year, I'm sure that you won't be disappointed. You know, it's uh, one great party if you do it right. And now I want to return to a topic that I included in the Occupy Movement segment of my last podcast, which was uh, where Chris Hedges uh, expressed his criticism of the black block tactics, and uh, I also added my support for his harsh criticism of them. Now, to begin with, uh, I want to play part of a conversation that I had recently with my friend and fellow podcaster, KMO, uh, host of the Sea Realm podcast. 
In fact, uh, our mutual friend, the Dope Fiend, was also on the call uh, because KMO was recording a few bits for his upcoming 300th podcast, uh, which uh, probably should be online just about the time you're hearing this. Now, what I'm going to play is a segment that KMO tells me uh, won't be included in his already uh, overly packed program, and so I'm not trying to take any of his thunder here. But during our talk, he asked me a question about the Black Block, which, well, I answered it off the top of my head, but which afterwards really got me to thinking about better clarifying my own position on this subject. And my purpose here is not to get you to agree with me, but more importantly, to encourage you to think this thing through for yourself. And as you'll hear right now, uh, when I answered KMO's question, I wound up saying that I could probably argue both sides of the question. So I'll play that for you right now, and then I'll come back and tell you what conclusion I've finally come to and which of the two sides I've landed on. Lorenzo, I don't know if you heard those episodes, but last summer, last August, actually, I went to New York City for a uh, psychedelics conference, and I barely attended the conference because Occupy Wall Street was so much more interesting. And uh, so I, I did a few episodes on Occupy Wall Street live from Zuccotti Park. Uh, you know, obviously, it's a podcast, so it's not live in the, the sense of a live feed on TV or, you know, a live web feed. But, uh, yeah, I was there and now I'm going back. And so I was, you know, we were talking with uh, the Dope Fiend and I'm going to be reviving the Psychonautica podcast with Olga and we're going to be incorporating a lot of the, uh, the Burning Man spirit around Brooklyn and Manhattan and that, that artistic community and scene there. But I'm also going to be on the ground, you know, when the weather gets warm in New York City. And I know that the Occupy movement is everywhere and that this spirit of transformation and, and revolution is everywhere. But, that being such a global crossroads and that being such a population center and a place where so many creative people go to try to establish themselves in a creative career, it seems like it's going to be a really exciting scene. And I, I plan to be there and sharing that with our podcasting community. Yeah, you know, I was I was really uh, envious of you uh, getting to uh, Zuccotti Park because, uh, you know, I wasn't able to do that myself. And, you know, it was a very historical event. And, and I think there's a, a lot more, uh, you know, we're only, you know, 160 days in or something like that. But, uh, yeah, with you in New York, I'm uh, I'm now planning on uh, probably lifting some of your audio from the Occupy segments of your own podcast and slipping them into mine here in the years ahead. I would hate that. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'll give you full credit. You know that. <laughs> oh, so you've been playing a lot of uh, Chris Hedges' material on your podcast in recent episodes. I wonder if you are following the sort of uh, confrontation or at least the, the, the rubbing of egos between David Graeber and Chris Hedges. No, I've missed that. Uh, I, I've, I've, you know, I've, I've been trying to work on this new book, so I, I haven't been spending as much time as I should uh, researching it. So uh, fill me in on that. Oh, wow. So where to go from here? Um, you know, Chris Hedges wrote that article about the black block being the cancer of Wall Street or Occupy Wall Street. Yeah, actually, I played one of his segments talking about that. Well, David Graeber responded to that saying, this is some very dangerous rhetoric from you, Chris Hedges. Um, one, you know, the black block people and their activities are not nearly as, as cartoonishly simplistic as you have been portraying them. Uh, secondly, you know, even Gandhi, you know, Gandhi said that if he had to choose between nonviolence and or if he had to choose between violence and cowardice, he would always choose violence. 
And while he took a nonviolent path, he never condemned people who used violence to fight the British occupation of his country. And David Graeber is basically championing the right of people to resist by whatever means they see fit. And he made a pretty compelling case. I, I can't say that I come down on one side or the other. Well, I I, uh, I, I understand what's, what he's saying there, and uh, in, in uh, to a large degree I support it. I think that the uh, point that Chris Hedges made that seems maybe to be uh, kind of pushed to the background is one of the points he was making is if they wanted to uh, have their uh, black lock uh, activities, they, they shouldn't uh, blend, you know, use the main crowd as their foil. And I, I have two real problems with the black lock. One is not the violence, quite frankly. It's that that is the easiest group to infiltrate. And I remember COINTELPRO back from the, uh, you know, the 60s. And so I'm, uh, the black lock is the easiest for the government to, uh, uh, infiltrate and then kind of turn the popular opinion against them. And then, you know, I, so I was kind of ambivalent about it until, uh, uh, the black block, uh, you know, they attacked Tim Pool and then they stole Freedom's, uh, Freedom LA's camera when they attacked her out in the West Coast. And, uh, those activities seem to be more like police activities than real true black block. Uh, the, the pristine black block, if they would get together and do things without hiding behind the, uh, non, uh, violent protesters, I would have a lot less, uh, problem with the whole thing. It's it's a tough one uh, because for me the fact that there is this enormous gathering of people for the Occupy movement and Occupy activities, uh, you know that is an environment. It's it's not just an activity. It's not just sort of a, a rally that somebody has organized and they can claim ownership of. This is a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds with shared interests, but uh, different mentalities coming together, and. An environment like that, it just seems there are going to be parasites, there are going to be predators, there's going to be a, a human ecology that that emerges there. And I, I don't see that the sort of criticism that Chris Hedges has uh, has leveled against the black bloc people really can do anything to change the situation unless, as David Graeber says, this sort of language is leading to a sort of nonviolent peace police where the rest of the protesters actually use violence against the black bloc groups to exclude them and to prevent them from operating in this big melting pot, which is the Occupy movement. Yeah, you know, it's it's uh, there's going to be a lot of uh, you know trial and error uh, evolution steps here. Uh, one of the the things that's happened out here is is I've been kind of uh, involved with a number of people uh, involved in Occupy that are uh, you know closer to my age, and some of them are very liberal, been involved in all kinds of, of liberals activities since the '60s. And because of black bloc, most of them have dropped out. They they feel that the movement has turned violent now, which it hasn't. But that's, of course, the popular press. And so uh, out here, we've already lost a significant number of people because of black bloc. So uh, a, a lot of support, I should say. Well, something that Chris Hedges says, and which I, I absolutely agree with, is that the interests that the Occupy movement represents really are mainstream interests. These are the interests of people who are struggling in an economy which is supposedly recovering, but it's really, we know, it's not recovering for everybody. It is recovering for the moneyed class, you know, the people who make money by having money. It's not recovering for people who trade their time and labor for the money that they need to pay rent and eat and pay all the various bills and, and interest payments that people have, uh, you know, allowed themselves to 
to be controlled by. And I would probably take David Graeber's arguments a lot less seriously if I hadn't recently read Debt, the first 5,000 years. And David Graeber has got such a deep historical insight into the the ways by which moneyed classes and privileged classes have for thousands of years enslaved everybody else with money and with debt. And violence has historically been one of the very few tools that the masses have at their disposal to use against elites. And generally, it is some sort of violent revolution or at least the credible threat of violence from the masses, which causes the elites to say, "Okay, we're going to relent for a time. You know, we're going to loosen up. We are going to stop taking your children away into slavery. We are going to, you know, stop having debts which are passed on from one generation to another to keep everybody enslaved to this small minority. So I as as much as I understand the need to make sure that the Occupy movement does still seem to represent mainstream interests and concerns. And as, as much as I don't really care for his rhetoric normally, I have to sort of weigh in with Derek Jensen here and say that, you know what, there is a place for violent resistance, and we have to be very conscious about it, we have to be very careful with it, but there is a place for violence, because the elites are certainly not forswearing the use of violence against us. Yeah, I, I'm not going to disagree with any of that. In fact, uh, David Graeber's book, Death, the First 5,000 Years, I'd say is one of the 10 most important books I've ever read. It's, it's a phenomenal work, and uh, I learned an awful lot with it. Uh, and I have to admit, uh, you know, I've watched almost every one of these evictions, and had I been there, I would have been arrested at every one for violence because it, I really get angry about what, what the militarized police forces are doing. And uh, so, you know, I and I do agree that at least for sure the threat of violence is uh, the only way that uh, the masses, the working class, are going to get uh, control of their own government again. And so, you know, it's a it, like you say, it's it's a dicey issue. It's a fine line. My uh, I guess one of the reasons I'm pushing the nonviolent uh, end of the thing pretty heavily is because. Uh, at least in my audience, a lot of the people are, uh, you know, under 25 and, and, uh, it, it's so easy when you're young to get swept up in something like that and all of a sudden you're in jail for 20 years if you're not careful. So, uh, especially with the police infiltrators, I think it's pretty, and here in San Diego, we have already uncovered, uh, you know, photograph, uh, of the, uh, infiltration of the police into some of the more violent elements. And so, we know that's going on and that they're antagonizing uh, the crowd so that, uh, you know, it's if you know what you're doing, if you've got some experience in this, uh, then, you know, you, you, you can take your chances. But if you're just young and inexperienced with these mass demonstrations, you've got to be pretty careful that you don't get swept up and, uh, you know, get out of your depth. And so it's just a cautionary thing more than anything. Uh, the 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 senseless violence on each other, like the black block attacking the video streamers, uh, to me, is pretty senseless. But, uh, uh, you know, it, it's like you say, you know, I can ar- actually I could uh, very successfully, I think, argue uh, your side of the story, too. And uh, I'm going to have to look for more of uh, David Graeber's work because, uh, you know, I really admire him. And, and I would say that David Graeber is probably the the key person that got this whole thing going. I imagine that he would he would dispute you there. But, uh, you know, that, well, that was- might be false modesty. I don't know. Yeah, he, well, he was at least, uh, there from day one and very instrumental in, uh, uh, helping the discussion head in these directions, I think. So I, I have a great deal of respect for David Graeber. And, uh, and of course, you know, he has been around, uh, 
on on the anarchist side of the uh, of the coin uh, for a long time, whereas Chris Hedges has just been on the reporting side. So, you know, they're coming from two different worlds, too. Speaking of the reporting side, you know, if there are a thousand peaceful protesters and, say, 500 police and the police beat a few of the protesters over the head, then on the news that night, the the news media, the corporate media, is going to report that protesters clashed with police. You know, they clashed against police batons with their skulls, but they clashed with police, and that's just how it will be reported. And I know that you have great admiration for the sort of uh, emergent, courageous citizen journalism that has been allowing the Occupy movement to get its message out and bypass the really pernicious filter of the corporate media. Yeah, that that without these citizens journalists, uh, you know, this thing would be over by now, I think, because you wouldn't be getting the story out. For example, in Oakland, where uh, the city hall was trashed, uh, well, you know, <laughs> if you really watch the the uh, the video feeds, which are, most of them are still online and archived, you can see that city hall was left unguarded and open, and you know that it was, uh, and and somebody in the black block. Uh, Said, let's go take it. You know, it's, it's, uh, to me, they were set up on that. And of course, that's what made the news. And, you know, there's all violent protesters where uh, the violence isn't even close to 1%. And, uh, uh, so, you know, it's, it's, a uh, it's a fine line. And I am not going to say, I, I do want to maintain a nonviolent movement, but I'm not going to say unilaterally that violence is never necessary because, uh, as you said earlier, th- without the threat of violence, uh, these demonstrations are worthless, that the power elite have to realize that when you put a million people in the street, uh, their troops aren't going to shoot them. You know, that's, that is eventually what happened in, in uh, East Germany is the stormtroopers just refused to shoot the people. And uh, right now, uh, you know, I've talked to some people who are uh, retired police officers, and they say that, you know, the police departments are weeding out anybody with any kind of uh, social conscience and empathy, and, and they're militarized, and, and these are people that like beating people on the head. So, uh, you know, we're, we're in a kind of a dangerous time right now, and uh, yet, uh, you know, it's at least not like the 50s when everybody sat home and just said, well, you know, what are we going to do? <laughs> well, I, uh, I must also represent for the other side. Something that Dmitry Orlov said at the uh, the ASPO conference in Washington, D.C. last year, ASPO is the Association for the Study of Peak Oil and Gas, uh, he said that if you have 99 people, or if you have 100 people in a room, and 99 of them are united in their viewpoint, and one person is you know opposed to them, the 99 do not need to be violent. There is no need whatsoever for those 99 people to enact violence against that one person, because the one person is completely overwhelmed anyway. So... The, the slogan that we are the 99% is, it seems to me, an aspirational slogan because clearly we're not. You know, a different guest in the program, uh, Mark Rabinowitz, he was saying that he, he lives in Portland, Oregon, and there was a, a Portland, Oregon Occupy event where the occupiers, there was about 2,000 of them, and they were there chanting, we are the 99%, when across town at the professional sporting event, you had 50,000 people assembled, you know. So the fact that that, that slogan has been so successful isn't really indicative of the reality. We, we don't have a full consensus of the oppressed against oppressors yet. Uh, and if we did have that sort of consensus, then violence would be completely unnecessary. 
Yeah, I, you're exactly right. It's more like uh, we are a coalition of 99 one percenters. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in the groups I've been involved in, uh, I don't know that any two of us have agreed on anything other than change is necessary. So, uh, you know, that the, it was a clever way to get things started. But it's uh, and and Larry Lessig points out if you're really going to go by income inequality is 99.9 or something like that. So yes. it was a clever way to get going. But everybody now, like you're saying, is is realizing that uh, no, it's it's uh, more like uh, maybe like hedges. It's mainstream, and mainstream has a lot of different uh, uh, currents in it. And so uh, there's nowhere close to being unified, other than people just have a sense that things are unfair. And you know, you bring up peak oil. Uh, with all of this, uh, you know, saber rattling going on over Iran, uh, you know, gas is, is already $4.27 here in California. And I think you're going to see six and seven dollar gas, uh, before this year is out. That's going to change a lot of things. And, and, uh, it, who knows what's going to happen. But if they keep, uh, trying to start a war in Iran, uh, we're going to see some really expensive gasoline out here, and, and then peak oil uh, conversations take over again, I think. Indeed. Indeed. You know, something else that uh, Mark Rabinowitz said to me was, if you're really going to have a coalition of 99%, that's got to include the Tea Party people. And I was on an Occupy Cafe uh, conference call, and there was a, an old 60s lefty rackle type railing against Glenn Beck and railing against Fox News and railing against the Tea Party people. And I was trying to ask him, you know, if we're really going to have this broad-based coalition, it's got to include people like that. So where can you agree with their concerns? What what can you find as a piece of common ground from which to start to build consensus with these people? And he would have none of it. He was like, I will not soften my rhetoric. These people need to be confronted. And I'm like, okay, well, great. You've, you've you are entrenched in your polarization and you are entrenched in seeing these people who are just as oppressed and manipulated as you are as your enemies. And <clears throat> the 1% couldn't be happier. Yeah, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting. I've got, I've got a number of friends who are, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say they're in the Tea Party, but they definitely are aligned with the Tea Party. And, you know, they're very conservative. And uh, when we get together... Uh, we, you know, it's like that, uh, what's that, Ororobus, the snake eating its tail? Yes. Uh, the very, very far left and the very, very far right have an awful lot in common. And so when I get together with them, I, I just start and saying, okay, we disagree about, uh, you know, I don't like Glenn Beck, but, you know, I don't like, uh, that other blowhard, whatever his name is. Uh, <laughs> but, but let's talk about what, where we agree. And so I always start with something that's, uh, uh, where they're rabid and, uh, I'm close to it, and that's in my dislike of the Obama administration. And we have different reasons to dislike them. Their reasons are based on on what I consider, uh, you know, fantasies, but, uh, you know, the birther thing and all like that. But we both uh, agree that the administration has been a disaster. It's it's uh, uh, and, and then we can we ease back into, well, you know, a lot of this FISA stuff started under Bush and the Patriot Act. And so. Uh, most of them aren't big fans of Bush either. And we've found an awful lot of common ground. Uh, you know, they're anti-union just because they've been brought up anti-union. I'm in a union, and all of a sudden they say, well, you're not a bad guy. And so uh, it, I think that you you just hit the nail on the head that until the the Tea Party and the Occupy people find common ground, this thing is just going to kind of founder around because uh, if we're 99%, uh, you know, 30% of them at least are Tea Parties and 30% are 
are uh, way far left like me, and then uh, the rest of them are, are just in the middle of trying to figure out which way they want to go. Well, we kind of drifted away from the black block issue there at the end, but I left it in because I do think that what KMO said is very important, and that is that we have to begin to find common ground with our friends who are considerably more conservative than we are. As I've mentioned before, uh, back after I left active duty with the Navy, and even after I'd already quit practicing law, I was still very conservative and active in the Republican Party. You know, uh, after four years in a strict Catholic college, uh, another number of years as a naval officer, uh, both on active duty and inactive duty, and then as a Texas lawyer, well, there's a lot of conservative conditioning that has to be worked through before you get to where I am today. And uh, that's just the way it is, and it's going to be that way with everybody, probably. I wasn't a mean-spirited person back then. I I just was only getting my news, or my so-called facts, from a single source, uh, a source called the current establishment. And that's where you've got to uh, really love good old Dr. Timothy Leary, who taught my generation that we should think for ourselves and question authority, all authority. And uh, on top of that, my personal thinking is that You've also got to be prepared to change your own mind about life if you suddenly see things from a different angle. You know, uh, I once heard somebody ask Ken Kesey what was the main thing that he learned from the 60s, and his answer was simple. He said, never pick a fight with a dumb guy who has a gun. (laughs) Of course, he was referring to the police who were doing the dirty work for the possessing class at the time, and they still are, of course. Now, as for what KMO pointed out regarding what David Graeber said about the masses only having violence as a last resort to break the yokes that their economic masters have placed upon them, well, it, it may be true what Graeber the historian says, but, and, uh, and this is just my own opinion here, but it seems to me that today us masses have another weapon to use in place of violence, and it's called the Internet. Never before in human history have so many of us been so well-informed without having been fed our information through the corporate and state-controlled media. So, before we throw up our hands and say that ultimately there must be violence because that's the way it's always been, well, before that, uh, why don't we at least give this free flow of information tactic a chance to work for a few years and see what happens. And now that I've had some more time to think about it, What I said at the beginning of my answer to KMO just now, uh, that it wasn't the violence itself that caused me to take issue with the black bloc, well, I've changed my mind. You see, the more I thought about it, the more I realized that, yes, it is this senseless violence that I'm against. Let's face it, if you think that letting the air out of police cars' tires or throwing a brick through a shopkeeper's window is going to win a revolution, well, uh, maybe you need to volunteer for the military and see up close and personal what kind of violence you'll have to deal with if you want to take on the establishment head-to-head. But before I continue on with this thought, I first want to play part of an interview with Jeff Smith of the Occupy Wall Street press team when he talked about the black bloc with Sam on the Majority Report program. And uh, he's on the other side of this issue. Talk about um, the, these, uh, this story from Chris Hedges, or this piece from Chris Hedges, and um, also this uh, piece from David Graeber. And let me also just say that we're going to obviously post a link uh, at majority.fm to the owsbus.tumblr site so uh, people can get a sense. You're going next to Ithaca, you said, right? Yes, we'll be in Ithaca through Sunday. 
Okay, so people can get a sense of where the uh, the bus is going, so that um, you can meet up with it if you're in the area. But l you 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 tweeted out just I guess before the show that there's a lot of conversation about David Graeber's uh, response to Chris Hedges' piece about Black Bach, uh, Block being a um, a cancer within Occupy Wall Street. Um, what what are people saying? What is your feelings about this? Well, I, I mean, I think most people thought his, his article is frankly ludicrous and that it almost seems like he doesn't understand what, the so-called black block block is about. I mean, it's it's a tactic, not even a group of people. So it's almost like calling, you know, terrorists as if that they all have a similar ideology. It doesn't even make sense. And there are definitely people on this trip, you know, that I'm traveling with now that consider themselves anarchists in the you know strictest sense. And they've definitely. I mean, the whole issue with Oakland and violence and black block that's all been thrown around. Um, it, it's definitely very contentious, and I think the misnomer about it is that um, that there's really any specific line that this movement takes in terms of the, the tactics. I mean, the idea behind being horizontal is that you open up the possibility to anything happening. And so that doesn't mean that we necessarily prefer violence, but... At the same token, to just completely take it off the table or even what the definition of violence is, because, again, we're talking about, you know, property destruction maybe or, or in some cases um, challenging laws that we feel are not even really just anyway. So um, to me, it's more about understanding that diversity of tactics is about, you know, the openness of this movement and not about enforcing in, in specific ideas behind tactics. And so for now, it's been nonviolent. But to say going forward that that's the only thing that we would ever use, I have no idea what, this, what shape this movement's going to take. And I'm sure there will be elements of all these things. And, and so I think it really did a disservice. I mean, I think people feel like, in a sense, by Chris Hedges saying, this is tearing apart the movement, what he's actually done is tear apart the movement or, in a sense, um, do what he's claiming others are doing. And and that's been, uh, it's been contentious, but I think it's a good thing to get out there, I guess. But I really don't know exactly what caused Hedges to sort of branch out on that, uh, that avenue. I mean, my sense was that, um, and, and I think we had spoken about this last week, that at a time where we are in a, um, a sort of a, the activity of Occupy Wall Street is um, less... Uh, is more under the radar, I should say, in general, that it, uh, the weather and um, there is sort of a, we're in a sort of a, um, a preface uh, time period right now uh, where we are, you know, there's anticipation of the spring. I think the existence of people who are using black block tactics uh, seems larger. Uh, than it did at a time when there was simply a lot more people around. And so there's a sense, I think, by people who are uh, on the periphery or, um, you know, are sort of spending a lot of their time talking to the reactions of other people that there's a concern that this is alienating. Uh, I think that concern is overstated 
to a certain extent um, because, like I say, it doesn't really it doesn't really matter what people's perceptions are now. I think um, you know, or I should say, it doesn't matter what people's perceptions are now, as a, um, that they can't be dispelled with 15,000 people, you know, marching up Broadway or something, um, or, you know, uh, 100,000 people going on strike across the country. Those are all things that can certainly make people forget about uh, a couple of uh, black block uh, tactics that were, you know, employed in February uh, of this year. So it's it's interesting to see. I think the most, the the the, the part of Graeber's uh, article that stuck out at me was this part. Um, he was talking about um, diversity tactics is not a black block idea. The original GA in Tompkins Square Park that planned the original occupation, if I remember, adopted the principle of diversity of tactics. At the same time, we also uh, concurred that a Gandhian approach would be the best way to go. This is not a contradiction. Diversity of tactics means leaving such matters up to the individual conscience rather than imposing a code on anyway, on anyone. Partly this is because imposing such a code invariably backfires, uh, and the results are usually disastrous. After the fiasco in Seattle, we watched some activists actively turn over, turning others over to the police. We quickly decided we needed to ensure this never happened again. What we found, we declared, quote, we shall all be in solidarity with another, we will not turn in fellow protesters to the police. We will treat you as brothers and sisters, but we expect you to do the same to us. Then those who might be disposed to more militant tactics will act in solidarity as well, either by not engaging in militant actions for fear they are in danger others, or in doing so that ways, the ways that run the least risk of endangering fellow activists. So from Graeber's perspective, it seems to me that the key is for people who are engaging in black block activities to be doing so in such a way that they are not integrated with the larger protests that are actually happening so that others may be endangered by it. Well, I guess I would counter that to say that, you know, they're on this bus trip with us. So the idea that somehow they don't want to be a part of the movement and aren't interested in other perspectives is just patently false. Well, no, no, no. And I think you're, mis you're misinterpreting. Well, you're, you're addressing hedges. And I'm talking, right. about, I'm talking about Graeber saying that it's important for people who are using those tactics to use those tactics in a way that um, makes it clear is far enough away from what is going on, at least physically, uh, with other protesters so as to not endanger them. I mean, he's yeah, arguing... I mean, I that those black block tactics are specifically uh, utilized to protect the rest of the movement because that way you can identify who is going to be involved in potentially more militant activity and stay away from them. Correct. You know, and that's always been, I mean, my experience throughout Occupy Wall Street is that literally every direct action, there are always choices to be made and they're explicitly made um, given to people up front that if you want to be in high risk of getting arrested, this is what we're going to do. If you want to be in low risk, you know, you want no risk, this is where you stay. And so, you know, it's more about just understanding that as protesters all, 
we have a common enemy, and it's much more effective to simply focus your energy against that enemy and not internally and allow this to happen. I mean, part of it, I think, is that it's sort of scary for people that are used to old constructs to just allow something to happen and to not have control of exactly every single person and what they're going to do. And at the same time, that's really what's made this movement so effective. And, you know, I think there will always be people trying different avenues and different tactics simultaneously. I think that's been the case uh, throughout history. But I really think that in a lot of ways right now, the most effective actions have been totally, you know, outside the system in every way. And, you know, you can call it violence if you want, but on another term, you think of what the, you know, the SOPA blackout, and in a sense, that was sort of taking these kind of militant, you know, black block tactics to the Internet. And they literally shut down sites or people participated in something that, you know, if it were physical and in the world, they would have probably considered that violence. Well, no, wait a second. Let, so, let me ask you this, though. Um, okay. Do you think there is a uh, a point that if um, and I'm not saying that Hedges is saying this because I I thought his piece was I I, I couldn't quite make it from make it out from this but um, from a tactical perspective if if I was to present to you and I I'm not saying I'm I'm just, I, this is a completely hypothetical but if I was to say to you uh, I have evidence uh, that um, shows that these tactics are scaring people away from joining up with protesters at Occupy Wall Street. I don't have that evidence. I'm not even sure that I think anecdotally that's happening or I buy into it. But what's your response if I was to say, if I was to say the, you, that uh, what is your response to the idea that it might be keeping people away because it's scaring them as to the nature of Occupy Wall Street? Um, I would say that, you know, the, the scare tactics are really only coming from people like Chris Hedges. I think that if you are involved in these actions in person, you find that there really isn't any kind of a threat in any way. I mean, it's sort of the same as Zuccotti Park. There were always these, you know, rumors that there were terrible things going on there, and then you would show up and realize, although you could find those kind of things if you were really looking for them, it was very easy to stay away from them at the same time and to make the experience what you wanted to make it. So, um, you know, I really have never felt in any instance, and I've been out there, you know, on the streets now for almost five months, that I was ever swept in a, into a scenario where I'm in the middle of a black block against my will or, you know, have ever felt like I haven't personally been able to make decisions virtually in every instance. So, um, I just don't think it's true. I, I think that, you know, in very, very um, select instances, primarily in Oakland, something may have happened that have been that has been different. But to characterize the entire movement, I just I haven't seen it at all. Right. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, Jeff Smith, he's on the bus, the Occupy Wall Street bus, uh, driving through upstate New York, heading to Ithaca. And you can go to owsbus.tumblr for more information. We have a link uh, at majority.fm. Jeff, uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, we'll talk to you next week. Now, if I understand correctly what Jeff Smith meant when he just now said uh, about the black block, and I quote, it's a tactic, not even a group of people. 
So, if that's correct, and I have no reason to doubt him, then what the discussion is all about, actually, has nothing to do with the inclusion or the exclusion of anyone. It's about whether or not to use a particular tactic. So, let me get this right. If the General Assemblies are to be where consensus rules, then why is there even a discussion in the places where the GA agrees to black bloc tactics or where they disagree with them? That certainly changes the way this story is being presented, I think. Uh, well, at least to me it does, because then what Chris Hedges is actually saying is that the tactic of vandalism and random or not-so-random violence, that tactic is a cancer on the Occupy movement. And with that, I wholeheartedly agree. Now, as to where you want to come down on this issue, well, that's up to you. For my part, after having served in Vietnam and lived through the rage and violence of the 60s, well, I'm just firmly against violence of any kind, even down to letting the air out of someone's tires. And yes, I do understand where people like Jeff Smith are coming from, and I can sympathize with them. However, I just hope that we can all keep our heads about us for the next few decades and work ourselves around to a little less warlike and more civil civilization of humans on this little planet. So I am firmly against the tactic of black bloc violence. Not against the people who favor that tactic, any more than I'm against the people who favor other issues and tactics that I disagree with. There are going to be a lot of disagreements in the years ahead, but hopefully we can discuss them civilly and without personal animosities. What you decide is obviously up to you, but if we can all treat one another civilly, I'm sure that a civil society will follow. And if you want to see what a truly civil society can be like, then I highly recommend that you watch the brilliant film by Melissa Wanasino. I think I pronounced that right, but if I'm out, I apologize, Melissa. And uh, her film is titled 2012 The Mayan World. I've already posted it on my Facebook page, my Google Plus page, and my personal blog, and I'll embed it with the program notes for this podcast as well, which, as you know, you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us. It's, it's a really wonderful documentary, and I learned a lot more about today's Mayan societies from that than I have in many years of reading about them. I just can't recommend this highly enough. It will cause you concern, it will get you mad, and I hope it will inspire you and give you hope for our continuing survival as a species. The story Melissa tells in this film, uh, in my opinion, is also intimately connected with the worldwide Occupy movement, which hopefully will help the voices of these wonderful people reach more ears. Now I want to end today by reading an essay that came in, uh, it was in the latest uh, Veterans for Peace newsletter. And if you don't know about VFP, you may want to look into it. Uh, whether you are on active duty right now, or ex-military, or simply a supporter of our women and men serving in uniform, there's plenty of room for you in this great organization. And uh, this month's newsletter began with an essay titled, VFP and the Occupy Movement. And it ends with a beautiful letter from a woman occupier in Boston. The historian Tony Judd wrote, shortly before his too early death, that, quote, For many American commentators and policymakers, the message of the 20th century is that war works, end quote. Many of these same commentators and policymakers took another message from the 20th century, that unregulated financial and commodities markets also work. 
As the 21st century began, the view was that the globalized power of the greatest military machine the world had ever known would guarantee peace and security, and that the globalized economic power of the most productive engine of growth the world had ever known would guarantee opportunity and prosperity. Alas, we are now in the 11th year of what the Pentagon refers to as the Long War, a struggle that has left the country less secure and whose purpose, beyond the original response to 9-11, has never been adequately articulated. We have just ended, and the word ended is in quotes, we have just ended a seven-year war and occupation in Iraq, a country that, despite President Obama's claim, is not sovereign, stable, or secure. Also, we are now in the fourth year of the worst economic catastrophe in the capitalist world since the Great Depression, a catastrophe that has accompanied a 30-year attack on the welfare state and the ethic of common provision necessary to sustain it. We are at perpetual war. We cannot employ our people in honorable work. The protests against militarism and monetarism have until recently been ineffectual. The country, and again country is in quotes, the country is not fighting the perpetual war. It's being prosecuted by about one half of one percent of the population. However, the rise of the Occupy movement, which is an expression of the frustration and the suffering resulting from the economic catastrophe, from its beginnings on Wall Street to an international movement with broad but incohate aims, has united those who ask for an end to war with those who ask for an end to inequality. Veterans for Peace has been involved in the Occupy movement throughout the country. The chapter reports in this issue document the extent of the involvement from Portland, Maine, and Oregon to San Francisco and from Minneapolis to San Antonio. Some of the most iconic events of the young movement have involved VFP members or other veterans. In New York City, Marine Sergeant Shamar Thomas, a veteran of the war in Iraq, famously shamed a phalanx of city police officers trying to disperse a crowd. His cry to them that they should be protecting the people in the street and admonishing the police that there is no honor in this, eloquently stated the cause of people attempting to retake the public space. In Oakland, California, Scott Olson, an ex-Marine who served two tours of duty in Iraq and who is a member of the IVAW and VFP, was struck by a tear gas canister and severely injured, one of the first casualties of this struggle. In Boston, members of Chapter 9, the Smedley Butler Brigade, who were at the Occupy encampment, formed the first line of resistance to the Boston police, who were attempting to clear the gathering by force. Some of the members of the brigade were injured and or arrested. Their actions inspired the following response by one of the members of Occupy Boston. And this is the letter that she sent. Veterans for Peace. I am writing to thank you for your courageous actions at the Occupy Boston encampment on Monday evening and Tuesday morning. You arrived in the middle of our General Assembly. The energy prior to your arrival was, frankly, a bit low. Most of us had been marching, chanting, singing, and standing since noon, and we were exhausted, yet committed to remaining. When you arrived, however, there was a significant shift in the energy of our group. We were suddenly enlivened again, bolstered by your support, your words, your mere presence. The very act, the theater of your entrance, conjured up an image of knights in shining armor, riding in, proud and brave, with your flags held high, flapping behind you. And let me tell you, as an ardent feminist, 
I don't think I've ever referred to a group of mainly men as knights in shining armor. Further, I had the chance to speak with a few of you as we waited for the police to arrive. Your encouraging words, and again your mere presence, emboldened and bolstered me. Having never been in such a fear-charged, potentially violent situation, somehow I felt safer because you were there. Frankly, I was not expecting you to stand with us as we defended our encampment. I figured you would stand to the side, supportive but removed. But when the police arrived to disperse us, and I realized that you all had no plans to move from your position in front of our chain, again I felt strengthened. From my position in the chain, I could not see fully what was occurring. But watching your proud, beautiful flags held tall, then waver and fall due to the police actions against you, my heart wrenched. I could not believe what I was seeing. You all deserve so much more respect than that. And then I watched one of your members be forcefully pushed to the ground. At that moment, something inside me snapped, and I was overwhelmed with the deepest feeling of determination I have ever felt. I was filled with fear, but also with pride, knowing that we were all in this together. There was no question in my mind that what I, what we, were doing was right and just. So again, I want to thank you for your actions and presence. I don't think that words can accurately convey my deep appreciation for you all, and what it meant to me to have you with us that night. Thank you, Safira Bell Masterson. And then the author of the essay concludes by saying, Standing with such as this young woman should make all of us proud. There is honor in this. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>